Welcome to the Preservation Technology Podcast, the show that brings you the people and projects that are advancing the future of America's heritage. I'm Kevin Ammons with the National Park Service's National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. Today we join Jeff Ewan as he speaks with Aaron Lupak, a speaker at the 12th Annual Historic Preservation Symposium at Texas A&M University. Lubeck will talk about his presentation about how we are and are not adaptively reusing cities in America. Just kind of give me an overview of the presentation. I know that one of the things that you talked about was that the sustainable future actually looks a lot like what we have today. Right. Um, that came out of a conversation I had about a month ago. I was up in D.C. talking to Carl Alafonte. And he had put forth that idea that I thought was really interesting and um, against conventional wisdom where we think of, we all visualize this future that's so physically different. Um, I think of the Jetsons as an analogy that, um, but if you just look at the demographics of, uh, of America, we're not going to grow as fast as we did last century. Um, you know, my grandfather saw us, our population quadruple. Um, so, of course, we've had great building opportunity and great architecture opportunity for new construction. But um, in our lifetime, we might only grow by 100 million or 150 million, and that means less building. Uh, that means more remodeling. Um, that means that our the, the future, physically, is going to look a lot like it does today, a lot more so than we think. Um, so um, New York and, and all the small towns and Texas A&M, the campus, um, are going to look in 50 years very similar, and that uh, is really a good opportunity for folks um, interested in promoters of adaptive reuse because we'll be restoring existing buildings. Okay. And one of the statements you made was that if you're going to adapt, that you have to reuse. What does that mean? Well, the, just the nature of real estate is that um, you have to have a use for it before you get financing to bring a project to fruition. So it's it's impossible to adapt something and not reuse it. Um, our, our friend uh, Gary Kieber in in, uh, in Durham, we were joking about it because he's you know he's a, one of North Carolina's leading preservationists, but now he's heading a, a development company that does a lot of um, um, reuse and adapt, adaptations and so forth. But the nature of development today is just leasing and so forth. So mm-hmm. he was—he said, really tongue in cheek and joking that uh, you know he was still trying to figure out a way where he could just do cool things with buildings independent of uh, you know leases and clients and so <laughs> forth. It's a kind of every preservationist dream, but uh, you know obviously that's that's just not possible. So mm-hmm. the term is is um, a misnomer or pleonism. Use the example; it's sort of like. Uh, uh, totally pregnant or, or cold ice. It's just, it's redundant. Mm-hmm. Um, so adaptive architecture or adaptive d- development might be more accurate or at least uh, less mm-hmm. wasteful. And you used uh, some major cities as case studies of uh, different approaches that were successful or not. I- explain some of that. Yeah, what I tried to do is sort of bookend the argument of, of adaptive reuse um, with uh, Detroit and Houston, respectively. Um, Detroit's a great example of if, if you're not able to adapt on a city scale the purpose and mission of your city, um, then you risk economic decline. In Detroit, this has been severe. Um, and when you have that, you're going to severely limit, um, if not eliminate, your ability to adapt and, and reuse architecture. So the effect of that is stress title, stress projects, stress owners um, who, leave, who leave buildings to decay and go back to the earth. And we see that all over Detroit. Um, the town is literally half the population it was in 1950, and that means 
half of the buildings are um, either gone or vacant. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a huge challenge and and uh, uh, for that city. Um, Houston on the other side is is a great example, a really interesting example that just continues to sort of grow because the next patch of green um, land is cheaper than dealing with or rehabilitating the existing assets. Um, so it is choosing to um, ad- adapt economically and move from industry to industry and grow flexibly as markets demand. Um, but in doing so, it's real estate um, uh, is always focused on newness. So there really has been, um, uh, in my estimation, limited uh, adaptive reuse in the Houston area. So these are the two sort of extremes. Um, and I think other cities across America are seeing um, flexible policy, flexible markets uh, that allow for people to go in and rehabilitate old buildings. And those are the ones we need to look, look to for examples. One of the terms that you mentioned after talking about your case studies was uh, the concept of the triple bottom line. So explain what that concept is and how it relates to historic preservation. Um, it's a great question. The triple bottom line is a philosophy that's been uh, growing in stature for the past 25 years or so. Uh, it's really buzzy in business schools right now, and it essentially says that in, uh, beyond the, the financial bottom line, which is the literal bottom line on an income statement or balance sheet, um, businesses need to also look at um, the environmental um, uh, impacts of what they do, positive or negative as a company, and they also need to look at the social impacts of what they do as a company. Um, and there, there's some fair critiques of that trichotomy, as it were, uh, but it, it's interesting from a preservation standpoint, I've, I've argued that um, you can make or you can make the case that preservation fits very well into all three parts of the bottom line. Um, it's most naturally a, a cultural benefit, obviously. Um, saving our buildings as, as, a, as a backdrop and physical representation of who we are and where we came from is a of cultural and social benefit. Um, certainly there's an environmental benefit of using existing assets and not, not taking up a new greenfield and so on and so forth. Um, and then there's an economic argument just from um, the, lo- the tie-in with both uh, the environmental and social sides, but that it's just uh, cheaper um, and it's better um, and costs less long-term to um, reuse our existing assets and stay within a dense, um, uh, a, the dense urban areas. Houston, again, I put forth as, as um, an example of a, an urban area that's undeniably had economic success, but it's pretty easy to critique the other two. Um, not a lot of people are putting forth Houston as the cultural center um, of the United States, although they're making steps towards towards improving that, and certainly the you know nobody's nobody's using Houston as a model for environmental uh, policy for sure, um, and 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 part of this ties into the architecture. I think if if Houston would start using some of its ex- existing assets, um, they they would improve in all aspects of the triple bottom line. Okay, you actually mentioned a, a third city mm-hmm. as an example of um, your golden mean, I guess. Sure. Uh, uh, and that's your hometown of Durham, North Carolina. Sure, okay. sure. Well, I love Durham, and I'll admit perhaps it sounds self-serving, but, I, you know, it's not a perfect town, but um, I think it's a great example of a town that has has ad- uh, adapted um, very well towards uh, market demands. This is a town that uh, didn't exist 110, 120 years ago, so it's very young, um, absolutely boomed because of tobacco, um, by 1910, uh, the majority of the tobacco in the world came out of Durham. 
um, and all of the architecture that is now so um, amazing in Durham is rooted in that tobacco history. So we have these great old tobacco mills from American Tobacco and the Chesterfield Building and so forth that came out of this era that are now um, being adapted. Uh, no tobacco today is made in, in Durham. Uh, the last cigarettes were rolled in about 1993. Um, and that's the sort of transformation that would kill most, most towns in America. But um, part of it is good policy, and part of it is that we're blessed. Um, we're, we're sandwiched between Duke University and Research Triangle Park. There's a lot of creative class people. There's a lot of really bright people who want to be there, who want to take advantage of the excellent architecture. Um, part of it is a really good policy for um, historic preservation. We have substantial tax credits in North Carolina that have been a huge driver of um, urban renewal, lack of a better word, urban rebirth, let's say. Um, and uh, that's really helped Durham come from, even when I was younger growing up in Chapel Hill, a relatively dangerous place um, to a place that is really the most desired city of the Triangle now. Okay. And what could other cities learn by its example? Well, that's a good question, too. I think, um, you know, cities uh, set their goals through policy, and that comes from from their governance. Um, States do the same, and a lot of North Carolina's success, again, is coming from state-level endorsement of historic tax credits. I think that's the easiest um, way to encourage good historic use or reuse. Um, the other aspects are uh, a long-term sustained effort to uh, educate and grow the preservation community. Um, I think that there's a, there's a lot of things that, that uh, people can uh, connect to about preservation, about as a means to teach history, to teach uh, a place, to teach even the harder sciences. I mean, you can teach everything from physics to chemistry mm-hmm. through um, our existing uh, houses, and that's... Um, the more people that buy into that are just going to help um, uh, increase demand for the sorts of houses that uh, need to be uh, sustained to rehabilitate cities. I'm really fascinated with the grassroots part of it because we tend to talk about um, the cream of the crop projects, these huge commercial projects that are fantastic, um, gorgeous, multi-million dollar um, rehabilitations, but most preservation uh, happens through the rehabilitation of a bungalow or uh, a mill house um, or a Victorian home. That's where most of the opportunity is. Um, and these are just the layman buildings. These aren't the ones that are you're going to read about in a textbook ever. Um, but this is the way that everybody can participate. Um, anybody who likes their community or architecture or just um, likes to be buy into the concept of stewardship can do so in choosing where they rent or where they buy or where they uh, choose to improve their own community. It's maybe the easiest way um, somebody can uh, participate in their current um, or you know across the time spectrum, their past, their, their, the future of their community and, and immediately ingrain themselves um, in uh, today's world is, is by working in an old house. Well, thanks for talking to me. Thanks. And that was Jeff Guin interviewing Aaron Lubeck. If you would like to learn more about sustainability and adaptive reuse and preservation, visit the NCPTT website at ncptt.nps.gov. Until next time, goodbye, everybody.